I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast. I love catching up with Robert Lumley and Stephen Britton from the InsurTech Gateway because whenever we do, we always have a really fascinating conversation. But I found recording today's podcast not just fascinating, but actually inspiring and energising. First of all, a huge amount has been going on since we last spoke at the beginning of the year, and the pace and maturity of InsurTech investment is, if anything, accelerating. So at the beginning of the podcast, we spend a little time catching up with where the regulated InsurTech Gateway Incubator and Venture Capital Fund is, with its growing and maturing portfolio of investment companies. Then in the second part, we start to examine InsurTech's role in improving the world's resilience to natural catastrophe. We hear a lot of talk about resilience in the sector, and much of it is really well-meaning, but often lacking in effective vision. For example, At any big insurance conference, we will hear very senior leaders talking about how we must close the protection gap. Of course, that's something we can all agree on. But we rarely hear any of those same leaders sell their vision of exactly how we're going to do it. And that's why I found this podcast so uplifting. Technology has a lot of the answers to many of the world's problems. And so does insurance. Yet we have often been going about things the wrong way. Instead of solving real problems for real people, we've tended to try and find new ways of selling them insurance products. Today you'll learn about a new model that is far more customer-led. Ordinary people don't wake up every day thinking, I must buy more insurance today. But they do worry that if there's a major storm or flood, they'll go bust. InsureTech is filling the gap by solving these client problems increasingly cheaply and efficiently, and then bringing the insurance in behind, not the other way around. What's more, 15 years ago, when the idea of microinsurance was first gaining currency, there was a sense that it wasn't really supposed to make money for insurers, that it was an extension of corporate social responsibility or international aid budgets. But of course, loss-making businesses are not sustainable, and they're definitely not scalable. These days, insurtechs are coming with a sensible profit motive, acknowledging that everyone in the value chain has to make money, otherwise the protection gap is never going to be filled. And that's what's so exciting. It's a much more mature idea, and of course one that will help create potentially trillions of dollars in brand new accretive premium for the global insurance market. Listen on for some inspiring ideas. And by the way, the first voice you'll hear is Robert Lumley's. Enjoy the podcast. Robert and Stephen, thanks so much for taking time to speak to the Voice of Insurance. It's been quite a while since we last spoke, so what's been going on at the Gateway? Thanks, Mark, very much for having us back on the Voice of Insurance. And I think it was six months ago, we were both locked in attic somewhere talking from goodness knows where. But the last six months has really felt like two years in the insurance space and insure tech space. The new norm is crazy and it's fun. I mean, we're having a lot of fun here. There's been a lot going on. We've seen businesses backed. We back businesses where we haven't ever met them, which is unusual. But of course, we have to do these things in in the environment we're in. We've had founders smashing their fundraising rounds in very high-speed time, which is, again, fantastic. We found that it's not really a question of how fast the funding can go. It's really how fast the insurance industry can catch up and the speed at which they can operate. The sector is growing, as we've all heard in the press, at a huge rate. There's a lot of money coming into insure tech space. It's a really exciting time to be, be operating in it. So everything's really accelerating. Everything's very much accelerating. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's clear that investors understand what the customer needs are now probably better than the insurance industry because they're running at such a rate 
that the money is pouring in quicker than the insurance industry can keep up. It's funny, actually, I was thinking about language around the new norm. And just when we get comfortable with InsureTech during lockdown, that we can get involved in some of these business models are seeming very relevant. InsureTechs are doing their new norm. One thing that's made me laugh is that I heard an anecdote of one of our businesses we've backed, the group that never met each other. They've never met each other, yet alone we're just meeting them through video calls. Because they're missing this idea of having good meetings together, they sent each other all virtual reality headsets. And last week they had a team meeting where they created avatars of themselves. They'd obviously got over the lizards and the chicken suits and got back to some range where they could look at each other across a virtual table. And they had a really productive meeting together where they were finding a culture in the virtual space. And they told me that the meeting was interrupted because over the shoulder is a window and they could see smoke coming from the hills. And they were all quite alarmed that there was something happening. They all got up to rush to the window and, of course, tripped over all the things in their second bedrooms because they were in a virtual meeting space. And this is their new norm, that they didn't need to see us. They don't need to see each other. And they are just operating global businesses from their second Who would have thought that? Who would have thought it? Yeah. It wasn't a real fire. Was it real fire? Well, <laughs> it's probably a real fire somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but you guys, you, you're in so many sectors. Just give a bit of a rundown of some of the things you're in. I mean, you're doing all sorts of things. One of the ones that just got some funding news was human that's in driving technology, real-time driving monitoring. and Yeah, we've got sort of fleet things on the disruption of transport and motor, whether it's about ownership or about driving behavior. Telematics is this kind of next generation of super predictive models and AI models like human and bi-miles. No, I mean, there's, there's about 20 in the portfolio at the moment, and some are at the very early stage, some going to Series A and about to go to Series B. So there's been a lot going on over the last six months. But I think what also has changed over the last six months is the factor of resilience and the focus now on how we actually keep everything working and how insurance can play a huge role in that responsibility. Actually, just to demystify, what's the difference between all these different series, uh, Series A and B? I think the standard listener, you see them in, in the press, but I'm not sure that everyone knows exactly what, what they mean. Well, so that's a good question. Let's take a moment. So we talk about pre-seed, seed, and then the kind of series of investments, A, B, C, D. And pre-seed, I think you may have heard it called friends and family in, in old language, is generally they're still working out what is their concept. It's generally research time, and it's pretty hard to put a commercial number against it. Seed is when you're getting involved in more professional investors. And the seed stage is often when you're looking for your strategic investor, somebody who can help you work out your idea, will join your team, will be an operator, a distributor person. That seed phase in other places is called the R&D phase, where you are shaping your product, trying to get some validation. So that by the time you get to the series investment stages, which are the institutional investors. And that's where you've actually got a business and it has a product, it sells things. Well, you've got some confidence that you've found your market and that someone's giving you some feedback that the price looks about right and there's margin in it for everybody and everything. But it tends to be a bit of an experiment through the series phase, particularly in InsureTech, because that seed phase is longer because it just takes longer because of all the things you've got to climb over to get to market. And then you go A, B, C, D. So D is the fourth time you've gone to get some money. Exactly. Right, exactly. And generally businesses are diluting. They're selling a piece of their business along the way. So a founder might have 100% of their business that precede. By the time they get to series ABC, they've got 10%, 5% of a 
But it's a hundred times bigger business, right? A thousand times bigger right. in many cases. Well, thanks for demystifying that, Stephen. I think it's really, really helpful. So just to give us a rundown, you're in a really eclectic group of different um, sectors, aren't you, within InsureTech, all different investments. Give us a bit of a rundown. So we've done the motor side of it. What else? So we've got farm parametrics. So there's farming and flood type policies. We've got cryptocurrency. We've got some crypto areas. We've got some gig economy sectors. There's a whole variety of them. There's basically two kinds of InsureTech in our portfolio. There are ones that are really looking at risk and they're better risk. And there tends to be ways in which we can find ways of making risk more accessible and more affordable, whether that be measuring on a mile-by-mile basis, making it fairer about how you own it and the aspects. So they're really risk-focused, and that's where the disruption is. And there's a second group, which are all about entirely new blue ocean spaces, things that just didn't exist before. The digital economy is a standalone thing in itself. It has currencies. It owns hotel groups. They're virtual. So we're talking about sharing economies and crypto economies that have no insurance presence whatsoever. So we've got the kind of first to market businesses in a lot of those spaces. So when we stand back from our portfolio, we say, right, these ones are making these sectors more resilient. These ones are helping us characterize brand new categories that weren't here before. And amongst that, there are 20 odd businesses. And I'm hoping today, because in the context of climate resilience, we're going to tell you more about the first set, which is insure techs that are improving the resilience of economies and communities and businesses and how some of the people walking through the door are, make, are cracking that. It's really interesting you talk about resilience because certainly that's a word that's been cropping up so much more regularly recently in the particular last 18 months. That was a neat segue to get us to the purpose of this discussion is to talk about how, what the kind of role InsureTech can play in this resilience and building resilience, particularly in relation to natural catastrophe and other things. And you're right to, to have spotted that there's a huge amount of talk about resilience these days. But when we're focusing that on specifically onto insurance, what do we really mean by it? Well, we think it is getting people back up and running as quickly as possible. And it's about the speed of recovery that matters to everybody. And we've seen that very really now with COVID. When things shut down and supply chains shut down, it's very difficult to get them back started again. So if somebody has a flood or, or a, an event that happens and they can't get as a business up and running quickly, then the chances are that if they if they haven't been up and running within, I think it's five days, the chances are that most of them will be out of business within 12 months as small businesses. Yeah, I suppose we are seeing this, aren't we, with all the, the effects on the supply chain. If you, you can't just shut a supply chain down and then open it up again and expect it to all be exactly the way it was before because everything's been displaced and nothing's where it used to be. Right. So again, when we're looking specifically in this talk about what InsureTech can do for extreme weather events and to improve resilience around that. So how can InsureTech help mitigate some of the effects of weather where traditional insurance hasn't been able to? Well, I think this gets to the answer of speed and certainty. There are two words there that mean a lot to an insured. So the speed of identifying a claim and tech is the ability to actually be certain that the event has happened. And, and we've seen a lot of parametric insurance coming out over the last few years. That addresses this whole speed and certainty. You want to know that if an event happens, you're going to get paid out quickly. The tech part of the insure tech, if we call it that, is now operating at such a speed that they can deliver claims, and as I'm sure you will have heard Flood Flash settle claims within nine hours of an event. 
of the water coming in the door. You know, that is really quite a significant change and tech is allowing that to happen. Yeah, but why is it always parametric? Is it just because it's quicker? Because it's yes, no. Well, it's yes, no. You're some, it's a binary event that means that you actually don't have to send people onto the ground and adjust or assess for the losses because you know with a degree of certainty that the technology is telling you that the event has happened to a certain level of flood or a certain heat or a certain earthquake uh, vibration. So it's the speed and certainty again. Well, Flood Flash was one of your early investments. It's doing really, really well. I mean, how much more of an opportunity is there? Is it really that we haven't really got started yet? It's almost that we've just about proved the concept in terms of the potential addressable market, one presumes is everywhere. Well, it is everywhere. I think what's again changed is that people understand that you have to take responsibility for your own risks. And by having the technology on short tech around to understand your own risks, you don't have to offset them to some insurance company who will charge you for it. So by that, I mean that you can actually see data coming through about the risks that are arising through technology, and then you can choose to risk transfer to different insurance companies or hold on to the risk yourself. So it's much more about you're really educating the insured there. You're sharing this data with them. They're able to understand that risk far better. Is that part of it? Completely, yeah. Yeah, It's because they're seeing the feed of that parameter as it fluctuates. Those are the, the broad principles, aren't they, parametrics? But the, what we're trying to understand is, could this be 100 times bigger and how? Are there more spaces that we could find? Is it the beginning or is it the only solution? And I think that one of the things that we're seeing more and more of, people from the field who understand different risks are understanding how to quantify them and find data sets because it's really openly available. And wasn't there five years ago was incredible open data around space data. The, the price of data was just dropped through the floor. Which means that well, what we hope is going to happen now is that local groups will say, we now have a data set, we can connect it to space data, and we can anticipate and prepare ourselves as a community. So microinsurance can, can become more localized, give people more power to first close the protection gap, make it affordable for themselves, and make themselves ready and in a way that they can connect to the insurance market, which has been a barrier till now. It's been too costly for them to actually yeah. take out the the insurance that they need because to assess it just wouldn't make sense for the insurers to take the right i get it so i thought data was going to be the new oil it turns out that it's really cheap oil Could be. <laughs> and building resilience is much more than just selling someone a gadget like in the case of flood flash i understand there is a gadget that you sort of stick on your wall at a certain height and then it, when it gets wet then the money appears in your bank account and it, I think it's tamper-proof, which is just, well, just pour a cup of tea on it and get some money. But resilience is much more about education, would you say? So it sounds like it's more than that. You're trying to add a lot more value than just sticking a widget on someone's wall. Completely. I think it has to be. And I think there's some figures out there that says for every $1 of prevention, you save $4 worth of aid in the event of an event happening. So there's some quite important numbers out there that says if you do some work to try and save your assets in the first place, you will actually be better off. Then on the education side, you're, you're helping people understand what that attritional loss is likely to be. They can make up their own mind. What do they need to get back in five days? What, what happens if an event happens? And it could be a drought, it could be a rainstorm, it could be, it could be a fire. And people need to understand what, what it costs for them to get back. And once they do that, they can start adjusting their risk transfers. So they can either take it onto their own balance sheet or they take it to provide it to an insurer and pay a premium. It's interesting we, we use the term they. 
I mean, we could be talking about a smallhold farmer with a 1960s tractor. So we talk about a lot of technical things here. One of the critical things we've got, to, some of the things I think that ensure techs who have got a really local in-field understanding. And we've got another business we need to tell you about is Ibiza. But in principle, what they've got is the ability to educate on the ground in the right language to the people and say, look, this is what you do and this is what you get. You don't have to teach them about insurance. You just have to tell them about this new value exchange and make it bloody simple. And you're doing it when they're buying seeds, when they're refueling their tractors and they're reviewing their annual tractor insurance. You're telling them that there's another way to protect their yield and their farm and their business. So I think the education is greatly driven by the point of intervention, which says, the reason I make a point of this is like, can we solve this from space? Like, isn't it wonderful? We've got this amazing global view now, this data set. But in reality, that education piece you mentioned, which we all completely see as the barrier, is done on the ground between one person saying, it's not that difficult to do this, you should try it. Well, we're seeing what early stages of some very interesting businesses that are grabbing the potential of this data set, but grounding it in field with the real thing that's holding development back is an understanding of how to use it and how to benefit from it. And also there's that loss prevention side of things to say, or to give the bad news to say, actually, some of these things are probably not insurable because that barn is in the wrong place because yeah, it will flood. Yeah, yeah. In fact, you already know it'll flood because yeah. it's probably flooded 10 well, don't, times don't in your lifetime this already. Week. Like you should move it or put it on stilts or move it. But you're seeing yourself as part of that education. Say, look, here's the science behind it. We already know that thing floods every five years. Yeah, and you've probably well, I seen think, it already done. I think we, we should, shouldn't be there. Or I mean, we're an something. early stage investor. So I think it's become a new filter for investments. As I say, can this group who come to us, rather than dizzy us with science and technology, they can dizzy us with insight as to how we can get people to adopt these things. Yeah, and adoption is the is the challenge of all of it, you know of any kind of insure tech. And I think also the fact that the you know seventy I think it's seventy percent of the world's food supply chain is not covered by insurance. So therefore, we need to particularly when we're talking about supply chains, if you break that because of some natural disaster that has happened, then it's going to take a very long time for people to get back into operation. So tell us about this agri business micro insurance startup that you have just mm. backed. Ibiza? Ibiza, Ibiza. Ibiza, sorry. If anybody was going to give it a pronunciation, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, sounds, yeah, it sounds like um, Ibiza. But, uh, yeah. It does. Not, that's what I thought when I first bought into it. Yeah, because we've been talking about microinsurance for quite a long time. I edited a magazine that only lasted for about four issues on microinsurance when there was a sort of microinsurance mini boom about 10, 12 years ago, actually. But we've been talking about it for a very long time. So is it the data, is it that, that cost of data coming right down that is really starting to make this much more of a viable proposition these days. Because back 12 years ago, I'm sure the price of the satellite data you would need to analyze crop yields and stuff uh, to be able to settle a claim from the skies would have been, I don't know, many multiples more expensive. Even sending somebody out to go and see it physically in, in person, doesn't matter where it is, is it expensive to do that? So I guess you'll probably tell us, is that the reason why you think it didn't work 12 years ago? That well, not to say it didn't work, but it was more, certainly it was probably seen as something that was more of as part of someone's corporate social responsibility budget oh, okay. and was probably not expected to be profit-making. It was to be trailblazing, but not profit-making. Yeah, You're investing in this business with a profit motive? Well, completely. I mean, the whole gateways, InsureTech gateways view on, on this whole InsureTech market is that all the stakeholders have to make money in it. So there is no point having a, 
an insurance policy that is simply burning the insurance capacity. So you might distribute it very well through a certain marketplace or niche sector. But actually, if you don't get the insurance company who's ultimately underwriting capital making money from it, it's not going to work. And I, I think over the last 10, 12 years, probably is the change here is the fact that technology really does drive the ability to assess risk when an accident happens or an event happens without having to get ground truth, get on the ground and get the truth from the ground. And that is huge because the insurance industry can price the risk. It just needs to make sure that it's paying out in the right event. So run us through the business. How does this one work, Ibiza? So Ibiza is a micro-insurance business. looks after smallhold farmers and it's distributed via the existing insurance mutuals. And I guess the critical piece, the next generation piece, is about how they settle claims. And I mean, Rob introduced some of these aspects just now, but they have a, what do they call it, a hybrid parametric model to get underneath it. I think the new piece is around the way in which they have a volunteer group who evaluate a claim-by-claim basis from a large data set. So they try to reduce the basis risk by creating this kind of crowdsourced group who will look and will evaluate a risk one at a time. In terms of perils, what are we looking at? The weather effect on crops, so drought as well? Drought, yeah. But not disease, I presume not. No, not at this stage. But you can see how that'll move once you start gathering data and knowing what the ground truth is from space. Or and, it's really, and it's based around satellite data looking at those crops. Initially, yeah. And looking at what was there, what's now there. And, yeah, what, and what weather we? patterns. And you, you can tell what's, what's been going on over the last few months. So. And does it have that preventative aspect? Does it have a sort of weather forecast to say, don't plant your carrots this week because the, the storm's coming? I don't know the answer. <laughs> I think it's coming. I think it's coming. As ever, this is about establishing distribution and, and establishing all the things that are required of all the actors. They talk of a next phase. Of work. I mean, this is an early stage business. But of course, we will be reducing the protection gap is a joint responsibility. And that's absolutely baked into the model. It was interesting what you said about that profit motive. I think the reason why the magazine that I was talking about didn't work was because actually at the time it was part of very much of a development community. In fact, we started the magazine because it, we had a grant from ultimately from the International Labour Organization. It was probably funded by Bill Gates. So it was a good idea. But actually we couldn't get anyone to buy a subscription to it in the second year. And so we folded the magazine because no, everyone was the culture of getting everything for free. <laughs> so we couldn't make it work. I mean, it was a really interesting, it was a fantastically interesting topic. We couldn't make it work as a business for us. So it's really nice to hear that you're building something that will have a profit motive because then it'll be self-sustaining. Absolutely. It has to be. This is why I think there's such a divide on the insure, insure tech space is that there are areas of insure tech that will not be sustainable, but hopefully the majority will be, but they need to ensure that all the stakeholders have profit motives in there. And it doesn't need to be, and it definitely shouldn't be, huge profits. It's just realistic profits. You know, the, the likes that the B corporations are out there, they openly say that they have good profits. It's at a fair amount so that everybody's a force for good for all society. And I think that's what most people should be aspiring to. So it's that virtuous circle of making sure your client, for one, that they're still there. They can't renew if they're wiped out and you haven't paid. And then they're now living on international welfare. That's no good because they won't be planting crops then if they're in a camp somewhere. So is that the way you see it? Is that the capitalism part is helping your client grow, get bigger, become more prosperous, then have more things to ensure, becomes a virtuous circle? Is that the way you look at it? I think so. And as Steve said, it's about making sure that we cover the protection gap that is now out there. I mean, the critical piece to scale is that it's profitable. 
because then it, it can be scaled by venture and enterprise. We are talking about connecting a million smallhold farmers. As a network, this is an incredible challenge. And the fastest way to do it is to make it profitable. I suppose what's also changed, obviously, we're probably, we were certainly talking about farmers in developing countries definitely having phones and probably finding out the price of commodities by text message 15 years ago. But now, obviously, they've probably got a smartphone, haven't they? So again, is that technology sort of down on the ground? They can take a photo of the soil or the water source dried up or whatever, again, so they can have all those inputs. It's a whole mixture of all this data coming together that says what is actually happening on the ground. Yeah. Essentially, fraud is the one that's going to cause every insurer a problem if, the, if they don't get to grips with all the data coming in. But then it's going to, fraud prevention is going to be so much easier when you've geospatial, everything's geospatial. You can say, well, sorry, clearly that can't be the same that we're looking at from the satellite because you, you're showing me something different from your camera. I wanted to step back on it because I think what we'd like to tell your listeners is that there's a new role for the insurer if they're willing to grab it. And I think that's the thing that we want to play back from the front line that we're trying here. There's lots of individual ideas. And frankly, next time we speak to you, there'll be three more that have knocked our socks off in one way or the other. But there's something, when we say it's not insurance, it's resilience, what we mean, and I just want to reiterate that, it means that we're meeting groups who are understanding the customer problem. And it isn't, I don't have enough insurance. The problem is actually, when it rains, I go bust. And I go bust and my community collapses. And then we all move and we go somewhere else because we can't consistently maintain this local economy. So when you start at that problem and you say, this is the problem we're going to solve, we're going to make sure we design for continuity. The insure tech business design problem starts with tech. It says, how do we join all this stuff together? And then how do we underwrite it? It doesn't say, how do we sell insurance to these people? And that's a totally different mindset. You get to the insurance at the end, but you definitely don't start with it, which is why these projects are often driven by people who understand the problem, the system problem. They know how to rewire it together. Effectively, challenge one is, can we design something that will bridge the protection gap in behavior, in connectivity, in data, in ways we can anticipate? If we can, we've reduced the problem. We've reduced the insurable gap. And then we plug it with insurance. That is a new approach. That means that innovators need a bit of time to solve the problem and then come back to the insurance market rather than being hit over the stick. Why aren't you doing enough in climate? But then when you add that to the supply chain, as we were saying earlier, is that if 70% of the world's food supply chain isn't covered by insurance, then that is a very big issue. We saw it last week with the fuel not getting to the right place at the right time. The panic buying and everything happens. So we have to make sure that we don't just have a society that is driven by the fact that it can't recover from these events because these events are happening more regularly. But I'm really interested in the work, what you said, Stephen. So the mentality's got to be not sort of wake up one day and say, how can we sell all these people life insurance or crop insurance? It's to say, what well, is actually the problem? And then yes. see where we can fit in and then check whether insurance might be part of the solution yes, and- to that problem. I'm taking the opportunity also to zoom out of what is InsureTech. I mean, InsureTech has been what's our next frontier to sell more insurance or to make insurance faster and speedier and because we're an industry being digitally transformed. But I can't help thinking that we're now in the what's the new role of insurance and what is the right way of innovating. When you've got access to the insurance market, how do you innovate? And I really would like to talk to more groups that want to see the future role of the insurer 
and frankly, the insurer is the biggest party in this new innovation space. So they have a chance to fund it. They have a chance to think ahead further about their own industry, what it's going to be, and with a long-term benefit of securing their own future and new underwriting spaces. But the interesting thing is it, I don't think it's going to be driven by the head of underwriting. It's going to be driven by the head of customer. Who's our next customer and how do we serve them? Now let's build the new value chain behind it. So whether you're helping farmers in Africa or you're helping companies next to rivers in Wiltshire with flood flash or wherever it might be, what this is is a new discipline that's being learned from InsureTechs, which is customer-first innovation. What's interesting talking to you two with your profit motive is to say you're now saying you can do this profitably and you can see you know, someone's come to you with a business plan that makes sense to you, whereas before we might have said, goodness me, a million smallholders in the middle of nowhere. We're going to be talking about an expense ratio of God knows what before we start. And then where, you know, if it's over 60 before we start, then where's the value add? You know, we've only got 40 left to actually pay claims. Is this actually going to work? Is it going to add any value? Presumably, you'd be able to get to numbers that make more economic sense to the end user. Completely has to. It needs to make sense to the end user. And, and you've just identified those issues. You've got to report. That's at the front end, but then the back end, you've got to report on it, you've got to assess, you've got to corroborate the detail, you've got to settle a claim, you've then got to close on pre-agreed amounts. There's a whole chain of events that need to happen, which tech can just shorten. And that's the tech. Tech is going to squish that expense. Yep. Down so that you it's can... It's doing it now. So know, they're getting 70% value out of yeah. the, every dollar, and, and that's going to make things work. Yeah. And we found some of our startups are changing the model in terms of frequency and the value of those claims by just using the tech to identify ways of either mitigating it or just making it easier to solve and settle a claim. So how big an opportunity is this? We're talking about 70% of all global food supply. It sounds quite a big number. If Ibiza became the AIG of, of that space, what would it be? Well, I think it's back to this resilience piece. If the world needs to get to grips with how we feed ourselves ongoing, if the supply chain is interrupted, then how big a problem is it? And that is how big the market is. It's a huge market that needs settling. So, yeah, I mean, so we were talking about many, many billions, I mean, hundreds of billions, perhaps, in premium. This space that we're trying to characterize, one of the reasons we pause is because every week something surprises us, it's new, and oh my God, there's another £10 billion market opportunity. That's the nature of what we do. So I guess we'll come to one on two things. One is that the current in defined insurance market is going to be at least the same again. There's a doubling effect. At least half things aren't covered. I mean, this is a very pretty straw man way of looking at the world, I realize. But there's, what is it, $2 trillion insurance market? It's another $2 trillion. It's got to be, isn't it? Some people will tell you it's 50 times bigger than that. But the thing I do believe is that as we're identifying these new spaces, like a, a crop insurance product or whatever it is, I fundamentally believe they will be a brand new business that's been invented in the last five years or the next five years. That will be the market leader in every line of business in five years' time. And we don't know their names today. I fundamentally believe that, that the kind of Netflix, Amazon, Facebook thing will happen across lines of business. Why? Because they are next-generation businesses that are wiring into their customers, giving them what they want, and then reversing them into the insurance market. Of course, that's the way to do it. That's what Netflix did with content. That's what Facebook did with photos. It was just a different way of framing it around what people wanted. It's the rule book. And it's been set by other people outside of the insurance market. So when we talk about, you know, obviously five years ago when we started doing InsureTech conferences, we used to scare everyone by saying, you know, Google's coming to kill us. 
And so they're still coming to kill us, is what you're saying, that we need to watch out. I thought people had got over the idea that they were well, going to get killed. You don't really need, no, need don't. to know names, really. It's just that new capital can come in if it wants to, or the existing capital, or the underwriting capital that's already in the marketplace, can expand to take effect of these or take benefit from all these new areas and sectors that are coming through. These are billion-dollar sectors and problems and challenges that have got to be solved. And we've just identified the food supply chain as one, but there will be others. It is about the continuity and making sure that everybody can continue living after an event. We're talking about insurtech in mitigating natural hazards. Obviously, you know, we're talking about probably mostly wind and water there, or lack of water. We've got earth, wind and fire. I was thinking child of the 70s. What about those other perils? Obviously, we've been hearing a lot more about fire. Where do you think insurtech is going to have a role to play in some of those I know you might have been looking at different investments in, in wildfire because obviously it's come higher up the agenda more recently, obviously, given in particular the large US wildfires we've had in the last three or four years. Anyway, where do you think this could be? You know, we're talking about one extra couple of trillion on crop. What about wildfire and what about earthquake or all sorts well, of other any things? natural disaster has got to be in the view of any insurance provider because natural disasters have increased. I think the figure is 70 billion this last year in, in dollars in terms of natural disasters. And you think, wow, and that's not all of it, I suspect. That's just the insurance piece. So, you know, there's large numbers there, and we've got to make sure that the market can really absorb these sorts of numbers. But then you can't just underwrite it without having the clear data on it. So there needs to be – it's coming. But things are happening there. Things are, oh, We've seen a lot of people trying to solve that fire problem. But you just um, haven't found the right one yet. <laughs> not yet. May have done, but uh, – Got your fingers burned. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> So to summarize, it sounds like there's a massive opportunity out there that we're not 12 years late when 12 years ago, we were all talking about microinsurance. But so in one, you've, you've almost rediscovered the fact that this has now become much more of a business opportunity than it would have been 15 years ago because the costs are coming down because technology is just really doing the job of squeezing the cost. So anyone listening to this, your message, I presume, is to say it's really not too late and they can still get involved. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I think there's another piece of timing here. The imperative is more exciting right now. I mean, this is COP26 year. This is the time when actually what we thought was weather protection and weather risk two years ago has now become everyone's global interest. I started by saying, you know, how does InsureTech Gateway become the hottest seed fund in Europe? It's because everybody else is making the link that surely we've got a role to play in today's agenda, which is how do we make the society more resilient against climate change? That's really what's happened. The spotlight's on us. saying, so you've got all the tools and you're ready to help. And this is governments and presidents meeting to talk about something that you've got global capabilities to do something about. So I find that probably the thing that's putting the yee-haw into this space right now is a sense that we've got a role to play to do something here. A lot of this technology has been around for a while. It was just sort of sitting lower down the priority list. But it's not like a closed fund. It's like, no, go away. We've got all the money in. Now we're going to go off and make the trillions. You're still open. You're still oh, open. sorry. Thank you. You've, you're you've, open to more investment. You right? reminded me uh, why we're here. <laughs> yes. No, thank you. Yes, of course. Well, partly, but, yeah, but you are. But there's more opportunity. You could do with more funds and you could put them to good use is what you're saying, right? The a range of things that we're doing, we have a series of funding vehicles for groups that come to us and say, how do we get involved to have an investment interest in some of these early stage ideas with a view that we can learn, we could build strategic partnerships, or we could get some underwriting opportunities. And that is, you know, sort of 
support this early innovation, this early stage development unit, and see what comes out of it. And the further vehicles that are building around that now, growth funds, opportunity funds, allow people to double down some of those aspects. And it's a good investment as well, right? I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. This you've is, been doing well. You know, your first fund was starting to fourth or fifth year now, and some of these, so they're starting to come through, aren't they? Yeah, no, we're halfway through our little journey there. And, and it's sustainable. You know, we can carry on doing this, as Steve says. If we just, we can follow the ones that go all the way through to be these billion dollar businesses. But it's interesting that you still feel there's, there's more capital to deploy and you could deploy more if you had more. There is, would. A, there's so, yeah, there's so many domain experts out there coming to us with ideas to fix industry problems or new areas that, that you think, wow, this could go on for a long time. It's really interesting because so often in insurance, we have a situation where we can't have any more capital. We have to start giving it back because, you know, it's going to mess everything up. But this, you're saying the opposite. We could still do with more. There's new premium out there, new sectors to be had. Because they've opened up, InsureTech has opened it up, it's so much easier well, for them to get into the market. And also, so much of the early in, InsureTech was driven by our needs for, to look for new distribution. And I think what we've got here is a, the next wave, the wave that we've been a part of from the beginning, which is we're trying to hack and get into risk. We're trying to reduce the risk in the first place. We're trying to find ways of demonstrating that the insurer is fully integrated into the solution. And our time is coming. And we're meeting people who are able to to change the risk itself. And that makes wonderful, scalable new lines of business for the insurance market. I guess we're sitting behind the early hype of InsureTech's being disrupted. And we're part of wave two. And it's highly scalable and will involve the industry. And is not, back to your point earlier, uh, who's going to disrupt us? Google are coming. It's not Google are coming. It's like insurance is waking up to the opportunity of InsureTech to reinvent itself. Yeah, I think for 300 years, you found insurance as being the last line of defense for the insured. Well, now it can be on the front foot with tech to be actually really helping people to mitigate their risk. And in the event of a loss happening, everybody knows what that loss is, and it's paid and settled quickly to get people back on their feet as if they hadn't had the accident or the event. It sounds like we're just getting to the exciting part, whereas yes, at the beginning of insurance seemed to be a lot of People had clever tools for sort of onboarding existing customers exactly. into, you know, nice apps and front ends and, you know, just type your postcode and we'll do the rest type things. And now we've just grown up from that. Now you're actually open, trying to build whole new markets. Well, I think we, we've certainly seen a shift in mindset. Um, I guess it's because new people showed up. One is let's fix insurance to let's protect people and protect business. How timely is that post-pandemic, post-lockdown, where we're coming back with a longer view about what is our role? with long-term investment plans that turn into underwriting opportunities. We will be able to hold our head up in the kind of climate change space as proper actors in this space. We're making a change. Because you can deliver the underwriting figures so much better when you see this, the stats real-time. And we found that actually if you change the frequency and the value of claims by managing the risk much better, it's got to be a benefit for everybody. Well, I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. It's been really uplifting. No way is it too late. We've only literally got going and it's time to, you know, we've kind of maturing, but we're going See what happens bigger. in another six months, Mark, you see. Going bigger and getting more ambitious rather than less. And it's fantastic to hear this. So everyone listening, get involved. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. 
Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan, in association with Advantage Go, enabling underwriters to increase the speed and accuracy of decision-making. Original music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.